Well, we are going to come to a time in our service. Now what we'll do, what we do each week. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, there I am asking you to take out a phone again. Whatever it is that you uh, use, find the scriptures in, would you open it to our passage today a little bit further down in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 33 today. Exodus 33, beginning at verse 1. If you know the context of where this is, of course, we just spent 10 weeks in Exodus 20 looking at God uh, delivering the 10 words from Sinai. Here are the people of Israel still at Mount Sinai, only now in a much uh, deeper sense of distress. This is right after Israel has made the golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain worshiping the golden calf. And so we're kind of now in the aftermath of that uh, great failure by God's people. So if you found that, Exodus 33, would you stand together with me as I read this just in honor of the reading of God's word. Exodus 33, beginning of verse 1. It says here, The Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, and Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. Now these next few verses, 7 to 11, is kind of a sidebar, talking about the way Moses would meet with God each day. He would go off to his tent outside the camp, and God would meet with him, and he would talk to God as a man talks with his friend. But now in verse 12, we see Moses' response to God. So look at verse 12 now. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, would you come now as we open your word and would you be present with us as we believe you have already this morning. Uh, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to what it is you want to show us and God, uh, accomplish the good purpose for which you've sent out this word. In each one who hears today, you tell us in your word that when you send it out, it doesn't return to you void, it accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today, whatever it is. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, when you think about it, uh, so many of the stories that we know and love 
One of the things that's, that's, that's great about them is they're filled with difficult choices. Maybe it's one of the things that makes them so good and so compelling to us, filled with all kinds of difficult choices that the characters need to make in the midst of the story. So, you know, it could be any kind of thing. Maybe Spider-Man has to decide, am I going to save the love interest or the school bus filled with children? Is Frodo going to take the ring of power to Mount Doom to destroy it, or is he going to just relax, live out his remaining days peacefully in the Shire? Uh, will player 456 trick an old man in a game of marbles, sending him to his death, or will he play fairly and risk his own life? All, all kinds of difficult choices faced in these stories, and although they're all entertaining in their own way, I think the stories that we seem to resonate with the most, that we find the most compelling to our hearts, are the ones where we see the hero or the protagonist have to make a choice. Like he has to choose one way or the other, no matter how excruciating the choice they have to make. And I think the reason for that is, is because, well, those stories are the most like real life, right? Or they have to make a choice. Those are the most like real life. I mean, yeah, sure, we all love a great superhero movie where the hero finds a way to foil the villain's evil plan and he can save both the love interest and the bus filled with kids. But what we all know is that that's almost never how it works out in real life. In real life, you have to choose one thing or the other, no matter how much we might wish it to be otherwise. And I know whenever we find ourselves in such circumstances as these ourselves, we often refer to it as an impossible choice. It's an impossible choice in front of me. Sometimes we'll even say the words like, I don't feel like I even had a choice, really, in the end. But the reality is, whether it's conscious or not, we do still make a choice in the end, at some point. Like, you do have a choice, and when you make that choice, it does communicate what is of most value to us even if we don't like what it communicates. It does communicate what's of most value. So Moses and the people of Israel here, we see they have to make just such a choice as we just read in our passage. As God offers them the opportunity to take possession of the promised land that they were longing to reach, but without his presence going with them. A, a truly difficult choice, a difficult decision to make, which we're going to unpack more of why it's so difficult as we go, but a really difficult choice, and one that in making it would also communicate what was of most value to them, or to say it in a different way, what their true destination actually was. And as the summer months come to a close and we enter into this kind of new season, new fresh start of life and ministry as a church for the fall here, I think we're faced with a similarly difficult choice ourselves. For if you've been with us over the past year in particular, what you'd know is that one of the goals we set for ourselves and ended up uh, accomplishing was to clearly identify our vision and values as a church. To say, hey, what's our destination? Where are we headed as a church? And what are we all about? What's, what's our core identity? And on a Sunday like this, we're starting off, we're beginning a new ministry year. I can't think of no better time to kind of put that back in front of us as we all come back from vacations and stuff and into school and say, Hey, let's remember where we're headed as a church. Let's remember who we are as a church. Great Sunday to do that. And I think, you know what, both that does is it keeps us, that keeps that vision in front of us, but it also helps introduce us to maybe those of you who are new and don't know what we're all about. So it's going to fulfill double purposes. And yet, as I came across this passage again in Exodus 33 in my 
reading recently, one of the things that stood out to me and struck me was that, well, the people of Israel, too, they, they had a clearly defined destination that they were headed towards as well, didn't they? Promised land, Canaan, that's, that's where they were headed. They also had a clearly defined identity as God's covenant people. But in presenting the people with the choice of reaching that destination at the cost of their identity, what God was ultimately doing in, in some mysterious way was also giving them and leading them the choice to decide what their true destination actually was. Was it a place, the promised land, or a person? Was it the promised land or the promised giver? Who was their true destination? And while no, there, there's been no gross blatant sin committed by our church that like, like we saw the people of Israel here uh, making this golden calf and worshiping it, I do think there's still this answering this question of which destination we're truly seeking is a question that I think is just as relevant and just as important for us to ask ourselves as we start out this new ministry year. What's our true destination? So that's all I want to do, just for a few minutes. I want to look at this story, use the story of Moses and the people of Israel here in the wilderness to help us ask that question for ourselves. What is our true destination? Are we headed towards a vision of gospel renewal in our city and world itself or the God who will ultimately help us bring it about? That's the choice before us. And the way you know the answer to it is by simply asking yourself one question. Would we be satisfied? Would we be okay? Would we see it as a success to reach that destination if we also knew that God wouldn't be present with us? Would you be okay with that? And maybe you'd say, well, Pastor West, that's an easy question because we'd never reach that destination at all. It's not possible to reach it without God. But supposing it was, would you still be okay with it to reach these, these vision goals that we're working towards if we knew God wouldn't be present with us? All important questions that I think we can draw out of some time spent here in Exodus 33. And so to help us see and really consider this question for ourselves as a church this morning, I want to look at our passage here in just two simple ways. First, very quickly, I'm going to just review and reintroduce our vision and values, our destination and core identity as a church, but then we're going to look at two simple things. We'll look at Israel's indecision and Moses' clear conclusion. Israel's indecision, Moses' clear conclusion. So if you close your Bibles, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to that passage, Exodus 33, follow along with me. As we look at our stated destination as a church in light of what must always be our true destination. Okay, so very briefly, if you're just brand new to our church or maybe it's been a while since you pulled out that DHBC vision and values card that we put in your Easter boxes or you just haven't visited the posters back on our feature wall for a while that list what these things are. What, what are our vision and values here as a church? Where are we headed by God's grace and what are the values at the core of everything we do? Okay, vision, our, our destination of where we're headed, very simply this. As a people continually being renewed by the gospel, we will be ministers of gospel renewal in our city and world that brings about personal conversion, strength in relationships, authentic community, and flourishing society. Okay, that's our destination. That's where we believe God is heading us towards. And then the values at the core of who we are and everything we, that we do as a church is built upon are these, the Word of God, community, prayer, stewardship, and transformation. 
These are the values and the vision of our church. And there's a sermon series on our YouTube page that kind of go into way more detail about each one of these things, our vision and values. If you've never, if this is all or any of it's brand new to you, I'd encourage you to go back and find those, look through them, uh, listen through them as you're able, because they're going to give you a real deep sense, much more deeper than we'll get here this morning, of how it is that we individually as a church, this specific gathering of God's people, how we are seeking to live out the mission of every church which is to make disciples of all nations and to be witnesses for Jesus. This is how we individually are seeking to do that. Now, I'm not going to re-preach any of those messages, don't worry. Uh, uh, but in light of well, what I said this message is about, that we're going to look at our stated vision in light of what must always be our true destination, I thought it'd be good to actually just you know, restate what that is. What are we talking about? Having done that now, let's dive into this and look, first of all, at Israel's indecision. Israel's indecision, and at first, it might seem strange that I'm kind of comparing and contrasting uh, the people of Israel's response to God's word with Moses' response, considering they both seem to be the same. Um, you know, they both seem to mourn at what God says. They both seem to reject his offer that he puts on uh, the table. But hopefully, as we dig in a little bit deeper, you'll see why I'm contrasting and comparing these. But even before we do any of that, I think very quickly, we should jump back to Genesis 15, uh, where we can see what this destination that the people of Israel were headed towards, where that originated from. Where did this idea of a promised land even come from? And if you've never read that before, just very briefly, I'll outline it. Uh, God calls a man named Abram from the land of Ur, which is modern-day Iraq, and he says, go to the place that I'm going to show you. And although Abram and his wife are childless, God says two things. Through you, I'm going to make a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'm going to give you a land in which to dwell, the land of Canaan. So by this point in Exodus, uh, God's already made good on the first promise. He's, he's made Israel into this great nation. And now after having delivered them from slavery in Egypt, God is leading the people through the wilderness towards this land that he's promised to give them, this, this land flowing with milk and honey. But as I mentioned right at the beginning, here's where we have a problem now. Because after God had spoken the ten words to his people from the fiery cloud on Mount Sinai, what we just spent ten weeks looking at, Moses goes up on the mountain himself to talk with God because the people are too terrified hearing directly from God now. They're like, yeah, we know we asked for that, but maybe now you just go talk to him because we're freaked out hearing God speak ourselves. So you go talk to him, tell us what he says. Moses goes up the mountain and God lays out this detailed plan while Moses is up there, which has all to do with God's presence among his people. He's saying, this is how I'm going to go with you. You're going to build this tabernacle, and these are all the, the things and how you build it. That's all chronicled for us in these chapters before now. But when we get to Exodus 32, while Moses is up on the mountain, and we don't know how long he was up there. The Bible doesn't tell us, but he was up there a while. Uh, Moses' brother Aaron and the people of Israel grow tired of waiting for Moses. They just they don't know what's happened to him. Maybe he's died. Maybe he's just peaced out. He's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Whatever. They don't know. And so as they grow tired of waiting for him, the people of Israel decide they're going to build a golden calf out of some of the jewelry that they had plundered from Egypt when they left. And they begin to worship the statue, saying, these are the gods who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And like, I know, right? Like, don't even get me started on like, how it is you can take the jewelry that you plundered out of Egypt when God delivered you there, make it into a statue and then say, oh, these are the gods that brought us up. Like, it doesn't even make chronological sense. Anyway, that's what they do. 
And of course, God sees what they've done. And he tells Moses, listen, you've got to get back down the mountain. And as God puts it, he says, the people have corrupted themselves and turned aside quickly from my ways. So God is deeply angered at this act of rebellion by his people. And God actually tells Moses his desire is to wipe out the people entirely and start a whole new nation with Moses, just like he did with Abram. But just as we saw in our passage, Moses pleads with God, he intercedes for the people, and, and God relents from destroying them. But okay, so with all that backstory, with the, that's where the promised land came from and, and why it is they were headed there to begin with, now hopefully you can be beginning to see with much more cl clarity that judgment... Judgment is actually the context in which God tells the people of Israel they'll have safe passage to the land that he promised their ancestors, but he's not going with them. And if you see there in verse 6, God says they are to take off their ornaments. No, this is not Christmas trees or anything like that. They're to take off the, the jewelry that they had plundered from the land of Egypt when they left, which had ultimately become a sign of God's deliverance and blessing. He's like, take that stuff off and go. So just to put it in very simple terms, God was done. Like he was done with these adulterous, stubborn, stiff-necked people, and they knew he was done. And they knew that he had good reason to be done with them. Like they just, they were totally caught in the act of what they were doing. They had no excuse. So, as we see in these verses, God says, I promised, I promised your ancestors I'd give you this land, so go take it. Go ahead and take the land, but I'm not going with you. To put this in modern day terms, this is basically God saying to a spouse caught cheating, saying, tell you what, take the car, take the keys to the house. I'm going to clear all financial obligations. I'm not going to sue you. Go and take all the blessings that came along with a relationship with me. But the one thing you don't get anymore is me. That's ultimately what God is saying to the people. But now this, hear me. This is exactly, and hopefully you can see it, this is where the choice actually becomes truly difficult for the people of Israel. This is where the choice is really hard. Why? Well, because as Tim Keller puts it so well, this setup that God is offering them is actually what most people in the world want. We want the blessings and the provision of God. We want all this stuff without being burdened and encumbered by all the stuff about being in a committed relationship with someone. We want God's stuff, but not God. He's literally offering them what everybody wants anyway. But if you look closely, you see that, that, that there's a, I mean, I keep calling it a choice. I know that God's not really giving them an option. He's not saying, or you could, he's not giving them an option. But I'm saying it's a choice because they do have a choice about how they respond to God's command to go. They don't have a choice of whether or not they go or not, but they have a choice of how they respond to God. And when you look at Israel's response, you see it is an indecisive response. It's indecisive. Moses responds really decisively, and we're going to look at his response in a moment. But the people of Israel, it's like they don't really know how to respond. They don't really know how to respond to God. I mean, they're clearly sad about what he says. Uh, they, they do take off their ornaments. But here's the key difference. If you notice, where Moses fights for relationship, the people of Israel seem to just shrug their shoulders and shuffle away with their tail between their legs, just kind of resigned to what God said. 
And I'm saying, whether they know that they're communicating that or not, what they're communicating is that what's truly most valuable, what their destination truly was, was a place and not a person. What they valued most was God's stuff and not God. God says, go take the land, I'm not coming with you. And they just say, well, okay, thanks God. Sorry it didn't work out. Maybe this is for the best. That's their response. And when you take that response, how, how, they made that, the, how they responded to that choice and transfer that now, 2022, here we are kicking off the year, looking at our vision as a church, the, the destination we're seeking to reach by God's grace. I think we need to ask ourselves regularly that same question. Are we ultimately cool realizing that vision of gospel renewal if God isn't with us? Sad about it, but still okay. Would we want to realize that vision if we knew God wasn't with us? And again, maybe you'd say, well, not a problem, Pastor, because we'd never be able to reach that destination if God wasn't with us. And that's right, we couldn't. But I bet you we could probably achieve something pretty close to it. Do you know how easy it would be to, to draw and build a crowd of second soil conversions? All kinds of personal conversions of people who receive the word with joy but then fall away quickly because they have no root. You present a message, a, a, a truncated gospel message that's just about how following Jesus is going to take away all your problems, make your life better. You draw a big crowd of conversions with that. And look around our city. There's all kinds of community organizations, social service organizations. They're all about building, strengthening relationships. Uh, authentic community and, and helping our city to flourish, they're, they're all around. Not, not at all seeking God to do that. So no, we, shouldn't, we couldn't truly reach the destination our vision outlines if God wasn't with us, but we could absolutely manufacture a knockoff version that would look pretty good to the people around us. We'd feel pretty good about ourselves. Look what we've done. So we need to be clear. We need to be really have that clarity about what and ultimately whom it is we're truly seeking as a church. What is our destination? Because indecision, waffling, rationalizing about that choice of whether we want the results of our vision or the God of our vision is communicating what's really most valuable to us, even if we don't like what it's communicating. And I think that clarity is exactly what we see Moses demonstrating when he's presented with the same command from God. That's what I want to look at lastly here. We'll talk about Moses' clear conclusion. Moses' clear conclusion, and hopefully you see now why it is I'm contrasting the two responses, why I would compare and contrast them for where the people of Israel respond to God's indecision, to God's word with indecision, kind of saying, well, we don't, we don't want to, to take possession of the promised land without you, but we see Moses, he responds instead with like a laser-like focus and with the kind of urgency that you'd expect from someone who knows the value of what they're about to lose. That's how Moses responds to the very same word. And you see it clearly throughout Moses' carefully worded response to God, but in particular, you see it in verse 15. Look with me there. God hears Moses' intercession for the people of Israel, and he says, all right, okay, Moses, I hear you. I, I will, my presence will go with you. I'll give you peace. And Moses replies this in verse 15. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
God, if you're not going with us, we don't even want to take a step away from here. And then he goes on to add, verse 16, For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Which means, ultimately, what Moses is saying is this, Lord, our whole identity, our very existence, is the people of the living God. That's our whole identity. And if we lose that, if we lose that identity because your presence won't go with us, then there is no destination you could take us to. There is no blessing that you could give us which would ever be worth losing that. You are what's most valuable, God. You are the thing that's nothing is worth losing that for. Please, don't send us away from here without your presence. That's Moses' response. And I think the reason he could say that and the reason he could truly believe that is because of everything that he'd seen, everything that he'd experienced, even over the last year as he had renounced his Egyptian citizenship, claimed his true Hebrew origin with God's people. He'd just seen God's presence was the link between every good thing that had happened, their freedom, walking through the Red Sea, all these things. He'd seen the connection. He knew the value of God's presence. So that's why I think he could say this to God. John Durham summarized, summarized it all well here. He says this, By the mighty acts in Egypt, by the deliverance at the sea, by the guidance and provision in the wilderness, and above all, the divine revelation at Sinai, what the people of Israel had seen, what they had been given, and what they had the chance of becoming were all a direct result of the presence of Yahweh in their midst. And that's what Moses saw. That's what he understood, and so that's what enabled him to assign proper value and to advocate effectively because he knew without a shadow of a doubt, without, God's, uh, without the God of the promise, the promise itself carried no value at all. No matter how many dairy and honeybee products may be present in the land, he's like, it's not worth it. God, if you're not there, it's not worth it. We don't want to go there. Samuel Rutherford uh, centuries later, put it so simply and profoundly this way. He said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Do we have that kind of clarity as God's people? Will we maintain that clarity as a church when it comes to choosing between the results of our vision and the God of the vision? And listen, I don't, I don't mean to like pit these two things against each other. They're not opposed to each other. We believe God is the one who led and inspired us to this vision. So I'm not pitting them against each other. But I do want to say, yeah, will we have and maintain this clarity that Moses had? To always remember that the results of our vision without the God of our vision holds no value at all. That he must be the thing that we value and seek above all or nothing but kind of an empty facsimile of gospel renewal is all that we're going to produce in the end. And by the way, yes, I, I know I'm applying this specifically to us as a church and our vision, but hopefully you can see the very same thing is true for any other destination you may seek in your life. As followers of Jesus, sometimes we're very good at kind of tacking Jesus' name onto our travel plans and just assuming that he's going to go with us. But here's the litmus test. Here's how you know. Same thing as with our vision. If you could say, I'm fine reaching that destination, be that a relationship, a career, uh, a degree, whatever it is. If I know I'd be happy to reach that destination, whether God was with me or not, 
you are communicating what it is that's most valuable to you, even if you don't like what it's communicating. But here's the thing. I truly believe we can do this. We, we, we can do this, and we can have this kind of clarity that Moses had to see the God of our vision or any other destination that we're seeking individually as being of the greatest value to us, the destination that we seek above all when we remember one simple but profound thing. If you notice, all through what we've talked about today, the intercession of Moses for the people of God, when we remember that the interceding on behalf of the people of Israel we saw Moses doing in our passage today is the very same work Jesus did on behalf of you and me. That when I stood under the just judgment of God for ignoring his ways, seeking to be the Lord of my own life, when like Israel I stood guilty and without excuse, Jesus interceded on my behalf. He stood in God's throne room and interceded for me and for you so that we could restore that broken relationship and lead us to God's promise. He did that not simply pleading for God's mercy as Moses did, but providing it by bearing the punishment for my rebellion himself. When we think of that, when we remind ourselves of what he's done for us in light of such unfathomable love as this, I believe we can then, like the Apostle Paul, count everything else in life, any other destination we may seek, as loss, even as rubbish, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and being found in Him. Amen. Amen. God, give us strength to keep that clarity in front of us. We'll never do it on our own. Amen.